0: How's everybody doing? Good, good. Um, I I just want to start off by saying this. The last time I stood on this stage, it was in January. Uh, It was January, I think the 27th was the last time I was was up here. And uh, we knew, we knew that there were going to be two weeks in February where we were explaining and visibly portraying this friendship between Summit Church and Oklahoma City Community Church. So we knew that there were going to be two weeks where I would not be in the pulpit, and we were okay with that because of what it meant to, to our bodies to get to change pulpits with Tim and myself. Uh, what we didn't count on was canceling for snow on Super Bowl Sunday. So it's been a month. And, and I can tell you, I've never intended, as the pastor of this church, to be gone for a month. I think that's a pretty long time. It was never my intent. In that period of time, I did, though, kind of learn something. I miss you guys. <laughs> I, I do, and it, I'm not saying that. I know you're like, oh, that's cliche. No, I miss you, because, and here's why. You're my people. Like, whether you, whether you agree or disagree, you're, you're my people, and, and I love leading and being the pastor of this church. Every Sunday, I spoke somewhere. I spoke at other churches, to other pastors' people. And I was very nervous, because they're not my people. <laughs> they're weird people. And... So, I can say this as, with 100% genuineness. I'm glad to be back. I, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to dive back into the book of Ephesians with you. I feel like I'm back where I'm supposed to be. I'm back home. And, and it will be. will be for the foreseeable future. There's no more Sundays that we're gone. There's nothing else planned. So, Lord willing, we'll just ride this straight through to the middle of June when we finish the book of Ephesians together. So, that's the plan. I just want you to know that I did miss you, Uh, whether that's mutual or not is is unimportant because I did miss you. And um, I want to pray, and then we are just going to jump right back in where we left off, but it was a month ago. We left off in Ephesians chapter 4, so we will pick up in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24 is where we'll be today. So let's pray, and we'll get into it. Father, thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ, for the life-changing life changing Ability of your grace and your Holy Spirit as we unpack those huge concepts today, as we look at what new life in Christ really does look like and how that transpires. Father, I pray that there would be just a richness of your presence in this room, that your Holy Spirit would be thick and moving in mighty ways, so that God ultimately we would leave here looking more like you, having heard the truth of your word and responded to it from deep within our souls. So God, just come and move. Do what only you can do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, The context of this passage, we need just a little bit before we read verse 17. Ephesus is the city to whom Paul is writing. Ephesus is second only to Rome as far as its cultural significance in this time period, as far as its multi-ethnicity, as far as its form and function as it pertains to setting trends and just cultural trajectory. Ephesus is it next to Rome. And so within a city like that, where there are hundreds of thousands of people coming in, it's a tourist attraction, they're coming in to see the latest and the newest, to hear the newest teachings, to do these things. As a city that has that kind of a pull, Paul is having to address Christians that live in this melting pot of sin. Because Ephesus is not a godly city. The church does not have a stronghold in Ephesus. Unlike some of the other churches in Antioch and in Pisidia, and some of these churches where the The Jewish synagogue had a stronghold and there was a strong sense of morality in some of those churches. When Paul crossed over the sea into the area of Ephesus, it got different. The culture changed. The idea of revering a God was far, far far-fetched. No, the people of Ephesus worshipped one God. The Bible called it their stomachs. Whatever they wanted to do, they did. And they did it a lot. They were driven by their passions. Paul is trying to address this problem in Ephesus. He's saying to Christians living in Ephesus, uh, you can be in the world, but you can't be of the world. You've got to look different than the pagans that you live with. And if you don't, you're missing the whole call of Jesus Christ. But I love how Paul addresses this issue beautiful you see i think a lot of times even in our churches today whenever we want to look different than the world we do so by establishing rules that the world just doesn't necessarily play by the world is all about sexual immorality will be about purity the world is all about drunkenness and debauchery will be about abstaining and about um, selflessness like so we we make these rules and you're going well those are those are biblical rules yes yes they are but Paul doesn't address behavior in this section he addresses the mind how one thinks he addresses the mindset and what he calls the futile thinking of the pagans who live in Ephesus and he says it can't be that way with you you need a new mind that comes only through Christ Jesus so he doesn't list a bunch of rules of how you're going to live different than the rest of the people in Ephesus. He just says you've got to think different. And the only way you're going to think different is if you respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ and he comes and renews your mind. That's beautiful. Because that's not legalism. That's not moralism. That's not behavior modification. That's the gospel. That's Jesus. And that's the only way. That's the only way we can look different than the world. That's the only way we can look like Jesus jesus so here we go ephesians chapter 4 verses 17 and 18 so i tell you this and in fact i'm going to insist on it in the lord my authority for which i speak is the lord jesus christ i'm not just giving you my opinion this is jesus and i insist that you listen to it because of jesus so we should listen as well you must no longer live as the gentiles do as the pagans do. But here's how they live. They live in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding because of how they think. And because of their thinking and the darkening of their understanding, they're separated from the life of God. Pagans are without God. So they're separated from God because of the futility of their thinking and the darkening of their understanding that comes from the futility of their thinking. And this all happens because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Hardening, there's a medical term. Uh, if you've ever broken a bone and they've taken an x-ray halfway through and you can see the lighter colored bone marrow, that is, or it's not marrow, but the bone that's starting to fill in where you have a fracture. The way the body heals is that that soft stuff comes into the fracture, and then over the course of time, it becomes as hard as the bone around it. Okay, so that's the same medical term that Paul is using here to describe the heart of those who do not renew their thinking. It starts off soft and malleable and good, but over the course of time, it becomes just as hard as the bone around it. So they are the way they are because of how they think, but ultimately they are the way they are because they've thought this way for so long, they become ignorant and don't even realize that their hearts are completely calloused and completely hardened to anything of God. And when your heart is completely calloused and completely hardened to anything of God, you have no hope in God, so you look to other things in which to find your hope, and that's the situation that we have here. This hardening of the heart, this futile thinking, it leads to these things in verse 19. It leads to the loss of all sensitivity. I'm going to have you underline four things in this verse, and then we'll unpack them here in just a minute, but... The hardening of the heart and the feudal thinking leads to a loss of sensitivity. We'll explain what that is. Then once they've given themselves over to sensuality, that's the second thing I want you to underline. So their lack of sensitivity leads them to give themselves over to sensuality so that they then will indulge in every kind of impurity. That's the third thing I want you to see that defines this life that is governed by feudal thinking. And they're full of greed. That's the fourth thing. It's a picture of the pagan way of life. A loss of sensitivity, a desire for sensuality, they they indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. Let's unpack those four things very quickly. What does it mean to lose all sensitivity? It means you've lost the ability to feel shame or embarrassment. It's not sensitivity to the Lord that he's talking about. This loss of sensitivity is to the shame and embarrassment of doing the things that you do. Oftentimes, indulging in, in sin indulging in these things it, the ramifications of it are quite embarrassing but the first step is to lose sensitivity to that I don't care what you think who are you to judge me Puh. you've lost all sensitivity you've lost all ability to feel shame or embarrassment When you have no restraint from social repercussions, you then plunge into sensuality. That word sensuality is translated elsewhere in Scripture as debauchery. That doesn't help us much because we don't really use the word debauchery. And if we do, we use it kind of flippantly. Um, Debauchery in Galatians chapter 5 is described as one of the works of the flesh, a vice or a work of the flesh. And this particular vice is where a person throws off all restraint and flaunts this position having lost all sensitivity. They're like, I love the fact that I don't care what you think. I'm going to flaunt the fact that I don't care that you know what I do on Friday night. In fact, I think it's awesome that you know what I do. I've lost all sensitivity. I flaunt my current position. This person who is deep into debauchery has no regard for their own self-respect. Self-respect left a long time ago. They have no regard for the rights and the feelings of others. I do what I'm going to do, and I don't care how it makes you feel. And then finally, they really have no regard for just simple public decency. Okay? And then that leads one to dive into every kind of impurity. The word impurity is a broad term. It encompasses riotous and excessive living. Okay? It can encompass that, but it also refers to unrestrained sexual behavior. So, once you don't care anymore you plunge into debauchery where you actually start to flaunt that you don't care. Then you start to live in excess. You start to live a riotous life. And oftentimes it's a life that is characterized by unrestrained sexual behavior. You, you can fill in the blanks there. I don't need to put any detail to this. Unrestrained sexual behavior. That is absolutely what was going on in the atmosphere and the climate of Ephesus at this time. And then it says that they're full of greed, but this has nothing to do with money. They're not greedy for money. That last phrase is actually a prepositional phrase describing the previous two vices, debauchery and impurity. They're full of greed, meaning this. They continually lust for more. More what? More debauchery, more impurity. That is the state of the unregenerate mind. Now, we need to do something because we was, we was born in a country where you don't act like that. We're not in first century Ephesus, so I don't even know why you're bringing up sexual behavior stuff. My kid's in this room. You're you're talking bad stuff. We don't talk like that. Okay, please do me a favor. Don't dismiss this. Because here's the truth that you need to hear from this passage. Without God, Without the intervening of His grace into your life. If left unrestrained and just to your own desires, your own dispositions, over the course of time, you will fall into this cycle. Slowly, you just stop caring, then you start flaunting that you don't care. Then you start seeking excessive living. Why? Because you're trying to fill a God-shaped hole with stuff that this world offers, and it stinks at filling that hole. And then, here's the awfulest part, and that's not a word. You realize pretty quickly that what satisfied you last week does not satisfy you this week, So, you seek greater perversion to satisfy yourself. And every person in this room knows I'm right. Every person who has lived a season or a chapter of their life separate from Christ, trying to fill that void with the things that this world offers, every one of you knows. That is exactly how it happens. You lose sensitivity, you become callous, you stop caring to the point that you didn't start flaunting that you don't care, you seek to fill yourself with excessive living, and then all of a sudden all you want is more of that because here's the truth, church. God's most direct response to our sin is to allow us to have what we desire. He lets us just go on sinning. Now, did Jesus do something about that? Yes, but if you don't want Jesus, then what's God going to do? If you're not willing to humble yourself, repent, confess, and accept the Son, if you're not willing to do that, then what's He going to do? Well, here, if, if that's what you want, there, here, I'll let you go. I'm not going to pull you back. I'm not going to grab you by the ear. I'm not going to spank you. Like, just, if that's what you want, have more of it. And we do. And we seek to be satisfied by more and more awful, debauchery, Awful impurity, awful excess. We seek it, we seek it, we want it, we crave it, we lust for it. Oh man, I need more. And then finally we hit where? Rock bottom. And you go, this is awful and I don't even know how I got here. I never set out to be here. But all I was trying to do was fill a void that only Jesus can fill. Now, there's hope, verse 20. The hope will come, though, in a, uh, in a condemnation, and sometimes the Bible does that. Verse 20 says, that, however, that's not the way of life you learned. That whole process we just lined up, that's not what you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Christ Jesus. Now, let's work backwards through this. Where is the truth of how we're supposed to live our life? If we're not supposed to live our life this way, the way the pagans do, if we are supposed to live our life this way, if we're supposed to look like Jesus, where is the truth, where is the systematic approach, where, where is the meat that tells me what my life is supposed to look like? Where do I find the other way of living if I, don't, if I can't do this one? You find it in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus now, he could have said the truth that is in Scripture. And that would have been an accurate, true statement. Where do we find a depiction of the life that is to be lived by those who are in Christ? We find it right here. Right here. Absolutely. But where is the most pure picture of what one's life is supposed to look like who is in Christ Jesus? The most pure picture is in the man, Jesus. You look at him you learn from him he is our ever-present teacher he is the goal he is the prize he is all that you need you want him jesus and in him we are taught truth now look at this two-pronged approach though you however were not taught to live that way but when you heard about jesus You gave your life to him, because he's talking to Christians, you gave your life to him, you believed in him, you put your trust in him, and you were saved. That was step one. When you heard about him, you believed. And then you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. So you were saved by Jesus, and then you were taught how to be Jesus by Jesus. That's the process. That's the new life. That's what Paul wants all those who are hearing him to live and understand and breathe. Now, it gets interesting because that process showing salvation and then what we would call discipleship becoming more like Jesus, that process of discipleship actually takes two components as well. The first one is the knowledge. We learn the knowledge of how one who is following Jesus is supposed to live and how they're supposed to look. We see the knowledge of that found in Scripture and in the life of Jesus Christ. So I will say this, church, I will put my knowledge of how to live like Jesus up against any one of you. I, I know how to live like Jesus. I've got it all up here. Now, I am pretty not good at actually doing it. How is that possible? You know all the rules. You know what to say, what not to say. You know what Jesus did. You know what to do. Why don't you do it? the same reason Paul says in Romans 7. I do what I do not want to do. I know that the life of Christ is one of selflessness and purity, one of holiness and righteousness, one of worship and sacrificial living. I know those things. I know it so well. I don't do it all the time. Why? Why? Because knowing what to do is only one piece of the puzzle. The second piece of the puzzle, and you need both pieces to live like Christ, comes in the form of the Holy Spirit, who enables us to actually live out and do what we know we're supposed to live out and do. Got to have both. He'll talk about that in verse 23. So it's, it's in here, but let's continue on. There's three imperatives that come from this gospel living, this spirit-enabled living. Three imperatives, three fundamental aspects of the gospel life as it has been passed on and taught to the church in Ephesus. And Paul will just remind them of those three things. It would be a good reminder for us as well. Step one of the gospel life is to put off the old self. Step two is to be made new. Be made new in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And step three is to put on a new god created 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 likeness of him take off be made new put on new three imperatives three fundamental steps to this gospel life each one represented in the next few verses verse 22 first we have to put off verse 22 you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires the old self is currently being corrupted that word corrupted means ruined By our deceitful desires. Now Paul's already unpacked this concept once. If you turn back and look in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, he's talked about deceitful desires, and he described them simply as desires of the flesh, desires that originate from our humanness. Now in this particular passage, here in verse 22, he's saying that our deceitful desires are any desire that stand in direct opposition to the truth that is taught by Jesus. Just an example, illustration. Jesus teaches us to put others before ourselves, to live selfless lives. That is an imperative in Scripture. That is taught by Him. We are naturally wired in our humanness to do the exact opposite, correct? We we do not struggle at being selfish. We are naturally selfish. So, a deceitful desire would be a desire to be selfish. Is it deceitful in that it is wrong? No, it's very natural, actually. But Jesus taught contrary to it. And so, this old self of selfishness and about a hundred other things, that self needs to be put away. Now, I think we realize this. So, what do we do? All right, selfishness, impurity, greed, lust... Idolatry, all these things that kind of come with my human nature. Alright, I gotta get those get those off. Ugh, that's a dirty, nasty old self. I gotta I alright. I need to get rid of him. I don't want to see him anymore. He doesn't need to be around. And so okay, all right, I'm gonna put him in a trunk, I'm gonna slam that lid, I'm gonna pad bo- pad padlock it, pad bolt it, I'm gonna do both. I'm gonna get it, I'm gonna get it locked. Nope, I can still hear him banging around in there. I'm going to shove him in a closet. I'm going to shut that door up. Ah, I'm going to put a dresser in front of that door. And I'm going to walk away and be like, sweet. Man, feels good to be new for about 30 minutes. Then what happens about 30 minutes later after you've done that whole thing? Bang! Who's on my back? Oh, that's my old self. How'd that fool get out of the trunk of the closet and the dresser? I, man, I need better pad bolts. Hmm. Um, you need to get off me, son. I, I put you away. How'd you get out? Um, taking off the old self is a continual process. The church messes you up. They incorrectly teach you that once you are in Christ, that, that dude's in a trunk never to come out again. No, he's not. That sucker's sneaky. He comes up in the wrongest moments. I am making up words today. He, he does, though. He comes out in the weirdest moments, the worst moments. He, just, he is never too far away. So did Jesus... On the cross, put to death, sin, the old self? Yes, that has already been dealt with. But as it pertains to us, here's the concept you need to understand. He's already been dealt with, but he's not yet been fully dealt with. Already, but not yet. There's a day when all that sinfulness is going to be gone, long gone. Jesus is going to lock it away, and it, there's, no, there's no, no help in them then. But for now, it's already been dealt with, but not yet fully dealt with. So we have to continually, daily, minute by minute, take that off. I don't like that's ugly, and that's not of the Lord. That's, you take that off so that then we begin this process of being made new. Verse 23 we're made new. How? Physically? No. Made new in the attitude of your minds. So in Romans 12, 2, it tells us to be transformed, be made new by the renewing of our mind. And how do we do that? Titus chapter 3, verse 5 tells us how to renew our minds. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. This should be one of those that you kind of have handy to remind you that it's not about you. Uh, says this, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. Hallelujah. Thank you that it's not because of what I do. He saved us through the washing and the rebirth. We are literally born new in Christ. But then look at this next one. And renewal, constant renewing by the Holy Spirit. God saves us because of his mercy, he washes us through a new birth process, but then he knows that it's already but not yet, so he constantly renews us by his Holy Spirit. Paul's logic is really actually quite easy to see. The human mind, apart from divine renewal, which comes through the Holy Spirit, is unable to guide us or cause us to live in a way that is pleasing to God. The pagan mind, full of futility, will lead us only towards destruction. But if the Holy Spirit steps in, then Christian righteousness will take place, and it depends on a constant renewing of one's mind through the Spirit. So we need and depend on the Spirit. He enables us to be made new so that we can then, go to step three, put on a new self. Verse 24, and we put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Not self-righteousness, not man-made holiness, or morality, no, true righteousness, true holiness that comes from whom? God. It is so important, church, for you to realize that any one of you is capable of manufacturing your way through these three steps. You can decide today, he's gone, spirit, I don't know, but it's good, he step two. Okay, now I'm new, let's do this, I'm going to live differently That is self-righteousness. That is moralism. The same word that's used here in verse 24 is used in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. The new self that we put on is also God's workmanship. Nothing we do Nothing we do. We just need Jesus. We just fully depend on him and then God creates in us something new, something that looks like his son, Jesus, because we were created in the image of God. Amen? It's all him. It's none of you. It's all him. It's none of you. So what do we do with this? Well, a couple things. Um, First, you just hear the gospel that it's all him and none of you that this futile thinking that is so prevalent in our world, that this desire to fill a void in our lives with things of this world instead of with Jesus, that the gospel comes to deal with that. Jesus came to deal with that. Jesus is all that we need. He is all that we hope in. He is all that we need to trust in. Jesus is the answer to that and we must submit ourselves to him, give our lives fully over to him so that then he can begin this process of helping us see that we need to take off the old. We need to be made new through daily and renewing of our minds through the holy spirit and then we need to put on this new self that is actually just god adorning us with christ's likeness and then we can walk and look like him we need to hear that gospel truth and then you need to know this whenever you hear the gospel whenever you hear that truth it is impossible for you to not respond and you're going well i've heard it a bunch and done nothing well, in your failure to respond to it, you are responding. You get it? By doing nothing, you're doing something. You're responding. And as Nick comes back up here, guys, I just, I just need you to hear the heart of that. You get to decide today how you will respond to Jesus Will you continue thinking futilely? Will you continue just assuming that this world has some things that you need and desire and that it will all be good and then you put Jesus over here too and you kind of play a little bit of both, a little bit of the world, a little bit of Jesus. Is that how you're going to continue to do it? Or are you going to hear the gospel today and say, no, I don't need any of this anymore. In fact, this world is leading only towards destruction. I don't want that old self anymore. I I, I just want him. I'll just take him. He's good. I'll have that. How will you respond to that message? Will you respond by taking Jesus or will you respond by doing nothing and by saying, ah, we're good. Oh, some of that stuff you're talking about, that's, that's not me. But you know, you know that if it came down to you walking out of this room and looking like Jesus and someone seeing Jesus in you, they wouldn't. If it came to you walking out of this room and talking like Jesus, they need to hear Jesus in you, they wouldn't hear him. You know that if it came down to you walking out of here and loving like Jesus and you needing to love somebody just like Jesus loves you, you wouldn't be able to do it because you don't know His love. You know that you're there. And the American church's response to that message is to clean up the old self. Let's knock off some of that sexual immorality. Gotta, Gotta quit doing that. You don't need to knock anything off. You need Jesus. He's the answer. He's your hope. He's the good news. So here in just a minute, we're going to stand and we're going to respond. And the prayer team and our pastors are going to be up here to receive you. Here, here's what this is for. This is for you to come up and just to respond to God. So if I come forward, someone's going to know that I'm a sinner and that I'm, I, I'm broken. And yes, they're going to know that. And I, I said this in the first service, like I, I will walk down here to be the first one to just let you know that's me too. I need Jesus too. That's okay. No perfect people here. They're going to be here to receive that, but then they're also here just, there's some. I know there's people in this church that are sick, that are hurting. I know there's people that are broken. I know there's people that are so distant from God, and and if if God could just move in your life, it would be the most freeing and liberating thing ever. And guess what? He wants to do that. And prayer is the way that we unlock that power. So you you can come up here and pray for whatever you want. But you also are holding a couple things in your hand, or you should be. You have a cup, and you have a piece of bread on top of that cup. And today we're going to corporately take communion, but really it's going to happen individually. So after I pray in just a moment, here's what I want to see happen. I need you to stay seated until you have done enough business with God to say with a pure heart, that Jesus, as I take this bread and as I drink this cup, I am taking upon myself your body, your perfect body made in the newness of God. I, I'm I'm receiving that, and I'm putting aside the old self. And I know that that cup, which represents your blood, I know that it is by your blood that you shed on Calvary that all of my old stuff is put to death. It is gone. And you just cover over that with your blood and it's, it's taken care of. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the price for me that I could not pay. And if you take that bread and if you take that cup, you're doing so with a heart of gratitude, knowing that Jesus alone is the one who saves. And that Jesus alone is the one who makes us new. It's not moralism. It's not behavior modification. It's Jesus. So after you take the communion, then I would ask you to stand, And to begin to worship, once you're done, it may take a while. So that's how it's going to go. Prayer, communion, worship, thank you, Jesus, because you are good, and we need you more than anything else. So come and fill this place with your presence. I ask that you bless the bread, that you bless the cup. May we know the works that you accomplished on the cross for our sins, and may we be thankful, may we be changed by you, And by the work that you did on the cross, come and make us new. May there be a freedom in this place for prayer and ministry to occur so that, God, we will leave here having experienced you in your fullness and in your goodness. Pour out your blessings on us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.